0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And And we're we're the the Trade Trade Guys. Guys.
1: You're listening to the Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys.
0: Hello, listeners. This is Trade Guy Bill, and we're joined this week by students from the University of South Florida for a special episode of The Trade Guys. Thanks for listening.
1: Hi, my name is Caroline Pope. And my question for you is, how do you think China's investment in developing countries will affect world trade? And more specifically, how do you think it will affect China's position as a potential hegemon? Look, the uh, the Belt and Road project is surprisingly ambitious. It's resulted in some downsides for the United States, that there was a famous quote from our former Treasury Secretary, Larry Summers, who talked to a f- an international leader. And he said, you know, when uh, when China comes to visit, we wind up getting an airport built. You know, when the United States comes to visit, we get a lecture. You know, so, you know, given the way we're doing foreign policy now, it doesn't stand up very well. And China is investing in the Belt and Road to the extent they are investing for somewhat self-interested reasons. I mean, they're buying ports They're making ports more efficient and they're usually there's a reason for the specific port they're investing in the final point is most of its loans not grants so what's the likelihood that china gets paid back Uh, a lot of loans given to venezuela i don't know if they get paid back or not we'll find out and that will have an impact on sort of how china's government evaluates the success of the belt and road it's definitely ambitious It's definitely self-interested. It is a way to project power that the United States hasn't done in quite a while. And uh, now, as to whether, as to the geopolitics of it, I'll leave that to Bill, because for me, China has never wanted to be a geopolitical hegemon. They're happy with the Middle Kingdom. Plus, they're over a bunch in wars in the most recent 500 years or so. So it's one of those things. I don't know what what their motivations are, but definitely the stature and the great efficiencies that come out of the investments in the Belt and Road have been in their interest. So,
0: One of the things that I learned in negotiating with the Chinese when I was in the government was that they're better than anybody I ever had to deal with at knowing what's in their own interest and pursuing it relentlessly. And they're not real good at, at altruism. Uh, let's put it that way. They're distinct from some others in, in the sense that they certainly were distinct from Trump in the sense that they're not against win-win outcomes. You know, if they get what they want, they're okay with you getting what you want as well. Whereas Trump was a a zero sum guy, you know, he didn't win unless you lost, but they have to win. And Belt and Road is about loans on favorable terms. It's about building uh, infrastructure projects, largely with Chinese labor, by the way. It doesn't create that many jobs in the countries, which has been a sore point for the. Countries, And also building infrastructure that ultimately serves Chinese market access. So the railroads they're building in East Africa, for example, are railway lines that go from a source of minerals the Chinese want to the port so they can be shipped to China. It's not infrastructure for the country. It's infrastructure to facilitate the development of the China economic structure that the Chinese want to benefit from. That said, I mean, Scott makes a good point. They come in and they build this stuff and the Americans and and don't ask too many questions, which for authoritarian states matters because for countries that don't have good government structures and and where corruption is a problem, a good part of the money ends up in somebody's Swiss bank account. It doesn't end up where it's supposed to end up. There's a a study of this that it wasn't about the Chinese, but it illustrated the the difficulty in developing countries. They looked at the provision of healthcare in Chad, uh, in Africa, and there was, a I think, World Bank provided a bunch of money to set up rural health clinics and health facilities all over the country. You know, when when all was said and done a couple of years into the program, they discovered that of the money provided, 1% ended up in rural health clinics. 99% ended up elsewhere. So this is a real problem in these countries. And I'm not saying the, the, the Chinese are the, the source of the problem at all. That's a, a digression. But because they don't ask a lot of questions and because they don't have rigorous World Bank-like, in theory, World Bank-like Criteria, these things they do get built, but you know there's people on this making a lot of money on the side. And they've created a number of situations where there are debt traps where they are loans, the country ends up not being able to repay. and the way the loan is structured, the Chinese then take over the asset. So the most notorious case was in Sri Lanka. Where they built a port on the east coast uh, at Hamantota and the Sri Lankans couldn't repay the debts of that. Now the Chinese own the port. You know, give them ten years, it'll be a military base. I'm reasonably, or a naval base. I'm reasonably confident of that. So right now, there's going, there's a big issue going on at the IMF on restructuring de- developing country debt because there's a lot of countries who have a lot of debt they can't pay. Not all of it Chinese. By the way, this is not exclusively a Chinese issue, but the outstanding set of debt, I think China is the largest creditor currently. It hasn't always been, but it is now. And the question that's come up is, you know, there's an effort, as there often is at the IMF every few years, to either reschedule or forgive the debt so that these countries can move on. Because otherwise, particularly with interest rates going up right now, it's increasingly difficult for these countries to borrow, which means they're going to go bankrupt and then that has a whole bunch of bad consequences. And the Chinese are resisting the debt forgiveness proposals. This is not resolved yet. And maybe ultimately they'll come around, but they've not been at the forefront of people that want to make this, want to be helpful to the developing countries. So I guess the point is a lot of it is self interest, not. Altruism, and I think a lot of the recipient countries get that. This is one reason why the Belt Road is kind of slowed down. People are less anxious to get into it now because they've seen what happened in Sri Lanka. They've seen what happened in other cases, and they're very concerned about the debt implications of this, particularly in a, at a time when global interest rates are rising. Uh, Hi, my name is Ariana Roman. Um, I also want to thank you guys for letting us on your podcast today. My question for the trade guys is, how do cultural differences impact trade? And have you experienced any challenges regarding these differences during your careers? Scott's been waiting for this one, so take it away.
1: Look, I think that cultural differences are the secret sauce of international trade. They have lots of benefits that nobody sees because we don't look for them. So let me first say that most of the most economists, trade economists, make the case for trade on efficiency grounds, and that's a very valid thing to do. David Ricardo was right about comparative advantage. Adam Smith was right about specialization in the 17th and 18th century, respectively. Here's something to think about, though, and the reason I stumbled across this is an idea, and have been thinking about it is, the, for me, the most interesting in the world is invention and innovation, because our future really depends on innovation, and we have very few solid ideas where it comes from, okay? I mean, we, we know how to get a lot of sameness, like with government research spending. You get what the grants administrator asks you to, to give you, and so it doesn't really generate much novelty. But what I noticed is, throughout history, port cities are vibrant, Port cities are vibrant because of the cross-cultural connections, because people from a ship from country X are landing and picking up products in country Y and interacting with people from seven or eight different other countries. Now, look, trade improves our lives in a lot of ways. First is that the exche- any exchange that is a voluntary exchange is beneficial to both sides. So every international exchange between parties wouldn't happen if it weren't good for both sides, automatically win-win. Matt Ridley, who's a peer, he's a member of the House of Lords, but he's one of the best science writers out there. So by all means, go follow Matt Ridley on Twitter, whatever you do. And, and second, he, he wrote a book called The Rational Optimist, which is an amazing book about sort of the history of invention. I mean, he's, he's written other books as well. But his point on international trade is imagine two tribes who don't know anything about each other prehistoric times. One is near a river bank, so their food supply is principally fish. One is in the forest, so food supply is, let's say, bananas. And one day, these two tribes bump into each other. And first, they don't kill each other, which is a good step, first step, okay? And then second, somebody has the genius idea of saying, hey, I'll give you some bananas for those fish. What happens there? Well, both tribes just improve their diet and improve the, their ability to survive, okay? So this is this is the ascent of man, in a, in simple terms, because of international exchange or because of exchange that is that is ultimately beneficial to both parties, and and there's a phrase that the British use that captures it best it's called the meeting of the minds. What happens in international trade is minds meet, and not just government officials talking and explaining their, their problems with each other, which is important. Okay, and a part of what I liked is learning about how different cultures negotiate agreements. I mean, Americans send fleets of lawyers into a conference room and have signing ceremonies. That's crazy in other parts of the, the world and for good reason. Okay. But so there, there's lots to explore there. And it's, it's if you're curious, it's a very entertaining thing to explore. But for me, invention really comes out of interaction with others who are trying to solve the same or similar problem, but have different factor endowments And different thoughts about it, different approaches. That's where real invention comes from. That's that meeting of the minds. And so for me, this is the this is the great sort of the positive externality, I guess is what an economist would call it. The positive externality of trade is the fact that people from different cultures have the the barriers have fallen enough that they can, they can meet, they can talk about it, they can, they can find other ways to solve problems. As innovation ultimately is practical. I thought about a phrase from one of our great inventors who was a very practical guy, which is Thomas Edison. He was very commercially oriented. He didn't really invent much of anything, but he commercialized everything. He said, opportunity is often not recognized because it wears overalls and looks like work, okay? <laughs> and that's true about any trans, any commercial transaction in any port city in the world. But because you have different people bringing different resources, and different ideas, it's the ideas that really matter. I think that is the cultural... Positive externality when it comes to trade, and it's why I, I love doing it and love meeting people who are in the business. I would only add if you
0: if you want to get into this, a guy named Rich Florida, Florida, like your school, although he's not from Florida. I think he was at Carnegie Mellon at the time, and then was at the University of Toronto. He did a fascinating short study a long time ago, but I think it's still valid that look, it wasn't about trade; it was about cities, and he looked at cities in the United States. And concluded that the cities where the most innovation was happening and the most, I wouldn't say economic growth, but where the most innovation and intellectual ferment was happening were cities that were open and receptive to LGBTQ cultures. And he had a whole bunch of examples of that and didn't really explain why that was so, except to say that the cities that invited diversity of culture by virtue of doing that essentially encouraged more innovation. And that's always stuck with me. I thought that was
1: very interesting. Hi. So I'm Stephen Aiken, and I just had a question about your guys' opinions on what trade and the US would look like as we begin to approach this debt crisis and Congress begins to discuss different trade offs, what raising the debt ceiling versus default would look like in global trade. Look, I, I think this is uh, largely theater. I think uh, that there's the leadership of both parties understands the seriousness and is going to find a way. You know, we've never defaulted. We're not going to default. The are important. When President Biden was Vice President Biden, the negotiations with 2011, the fiscal cliff negotiations, were about the debt ceiling, among other things. There was a budget bill there. That That's the difference now. And one of the reasons that it looks less organized now is they're not debating it in the context of, of an appropriations bill. They're not debating even an omnibus budget bill of any sort. Okay, there's a, no spending bill that's tied to the debt ceiling at this point in time, which makes it look a little strange. But look, I think they'll resolve it. Bill's a little more skeptical. And, and it would be really awful, but... I don't think awful's is going to happen here.
0: I am a little more worried. I mean, I think Scott's right. The odds are against it. And there is theater. Getting to a win-win outcome, because politically you have to have a win-win outcome, is complicated. Fortunately, it's a topic where there's a lot of moving parts. The House has passed its bill with dramatic cuts. But the effect of doing that puts a whole bunch of issues on the table. So there's a lot of things to talk about and you can reject a lot of things. But if you can identify some things that you can accept if you're the president and put together a package that's good enough for the House to claim victory. Then and get sixty
1: votes from
0: the seven. Then you win. So I think it's it's possible. I think there's a disturbing trend here on economics. And one of the things that that I've, I say frequently in the in the trade business is that one of the problems of trade policy is you frequently see the left and the right ganging up on the center. And this is an area where you don't have the left and the right ganging up on the center per se, but it's an area where you do have revisionist economics on the left and the right, which are making the debate more difficult. So you've got a group in the Republican Party right now who will argue, I think sincerely, that default won't matter, that we can default and, and you know, nobody will notice and life will go on, which I think is absurd, but that's an argument. There is also, and not in this week's debate, but in, the, in previous years and still existing, there's a group on the left who will say that deficits don't matter you know, that we can spend as much as we want, but basically there's a free lunch and we can spend as much as we want and it won't make any difference economically, which is a position that I also think is absurd. But they're both worrisome because what they do is they chip away at the center. And the center, the history of American politics has always been trying to make sure the center holds. American people, for the most part, are centrists. They're left of center, they're right of center, but they're not far left or far right. They're center left, center right, or center center. And in a sense, we have a two-party system that, that, historically has encouraged that. And you can make a good case now, I think, that institutionally we're drifting away from that and we're drifting toward the extremes. And one of the consequences of that is that it gets, first of all, the center shrinks and the number of people that are sitting there, particularly in the Congress, shrinks. And it becomes more and more difficult to have a, a rational outcome because you've got people on both extremes sort of shouting saying, no, 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 you can't do that. And not only can you not do what the other side wants, but there is no bad consequence if you do what we want. And that leads me to the point that we may end up in a situation where we actually are going to, we are going to default and then we'll learn from experience and never do it again, but it'll be too late because once you've, once you called into question the full faith and credit of the U S government, basically the question of whether we pay our debts, which is what this is about, you're never going to be able to recapture that. So this really
1: is an important moment in time. I believe in the Senate, which is becoming a more. The House has always been a majoritarian body. Right. Oh. I right? well, we worked in the Senate for 14 years, and when it uh, wasn't, when, it, when was, we had a couple uh, leaders, a, it's been a bipartisan project. Both Trent Lott and Harry Reid were House members who got to the Senate and liked the House better, and worked to change the rules to make the Senate more like the House. And now we have a Senate that yeah, at least. But- just twenty years ago it was more. It was more like the house. It's more like the house, but the house started it, and it was New Gingrich yeah, yeah. who started it. Yes, because what Newt
0: wanted to do was he wanted to have a parliamentary system. Yes, and our constitution doesn't provide for a parliamentary system, but he redesigned the house to operate like a party, a uh, parliamentary system with party discipline. The committee chairmanships were rewarded on based on how much money you raised for the party and how loyal you were to the leadership. Uh, important bills were drafted by the leadership, not by the committees. If you were in the, when you were in seventh grade, like I was, maybe you saw this pamphlet: "How a Bill Becomes a Law." Okay, it doesn't work that way anymore. And blame Newt. Uh, uh, the and it's ex, but, but Scott is exactly right. You know, this was a house disease, and then you had these people that went over to the Senate it's, and they it, took it, it
1: with them. Yeah, it's now infected the Senate. And uh, but w- what you would notice is neither one of us blamed the president because we both know he's he's basically we have a weak executive system. He has got to find now he he has he does have the bully pulpit and can lead this compromise that has to happen. And Bill, Bill outlined it perfectly, is you've got to add something that gets 60 votes in the Senate that is close enough to a victory for the House to declare victory and pass it again when it comes back, even though it's not exactly what they passed the first time. And the president's got to sign it. That's all. Do you imagine um, AI being at the centerpiece of future trade debates? Uh, well, eventually, look, AI is a very important technology for services efficiency. And that's its obvious application. Now so let's talk about why the US economy grows slowly now or more slowly than it did a decade or two ago. It is because our recent investments have been in services that aren't particularly responsive to efficiency improvements. Specifically, feds, eds and meds. All right, what are the areas of employment growth in the United States over the last 10 years? They are in education, particularly higher education, medical services, of all sorts, mostly not doctors though. We actually have about the same number of doctors we did 10 years ago. We got a lot of medical administrators and people in, in the business of delivering medicine and in government. So that's meds, eds, and feds. Okay. Those remain growing industries in our economy and continue their their resistance to efficiency improvements will have continued slow growth. AI can help. And, and auto, those are obvious applications. So has this happened before you bet it has it happened when the information and communication technology revolution happened and back office services which used to be done locally consolidated and it was a dramatic improvement in business services efficiency so way be- way before you were even even a, a thought in your gleam in your parents eyes okay long distance phone calls used to be really expensive now look go back just George H W Bush was president 1990 George H.W. Bush's president, a one-minute call person-to-person from New York to Los Angeles was a $1 dollar in 1990 dollars. okay? Now, the cost of a phone call is basically the cost of electricity. It's fractions of a cent. What that did was revolutionize the delivery of back office systems. So in 1978, 79, I walked into my first job with Procter Gamble at a detergent plant in Lima, Ohio, and in the middle of the operation was, a, was an accounting office. Okay, the handled all the data processing. It was a business service center, and it was in the middle of the plant for convenience because a lot of the transactions were face to face. You loaded a truck, you needed a ship set, so the bill of lading was in the hands of the trucker before he pulled out. All right, that was generated by the accounting office. Well, I went back to tour the plant just before I retired, and the plant now produces about ten times as much as it did when I was there. Now I like that as a shareholder, uh, but there was no accounting office. It was gone. Okay. It was all done remotely from either Cincinnati or Costa Rica, depending on the time of day. That's a difference in business services in uh, efficiency. That was a step change and made products less expensive and made businesses grow. That's what AI could do. And, you know, in, in the meantime... You had a lot fewer people working in accounting in the United States. The what used to be the Big Eight accounting firms became the Final Four. Okay, I think there are still four. If EY survives its breakup, I'm, I'm not sure it's going to. But uh, you know, so so we outsourced a lot of that work to human beings elsewhere, but they were connected electronically. AI basically takes the the nuisance of having that person in the third country involved in the operation at all. So I think it's a powerful tool. Now that's its application to the economy. And services productivity, we need gains in services productivity, first, because service is 80% of the economy, and second, because we're not doing it now and it hurts us in growth. But the trade controversy will come, the same reason the free flow of data is a controversy now, because delivering cross-border services with AI is going to be something that people won't understand. They may have rules against without even knowing it, which is what's happened to free flow of data. And it's going to be a riot. So yeah. Become a trade person, stick around, solve the problems. What did I miss, Bill?
0: I have not a lot to say about that. Somebody who grew up watching Terminator movies, (laughs) (laughs) I tend to be suspicious. But I think the issue, the difference between what Scott was talking about in AI, I think is going to turn out to be reliability. And, you know, you have to have some confidence that... The information you're getting, uh, if it's going to function in the commercial world, you need to have confidence that the data or information that you're getting is true and accurate and reliable. And because if you don't, you're not going to you're not going to use it. And so far, the AI results on that are mixed. Okay, five years from now, maybe this won't be an issue, and you know everything will be perfect. But right now, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about the product that it delivers and as long as that uncertainty is there i'm not sure that commercial adaptation is going to be is going to be widespread in, in a way it's a little bit like autonomous vehicles which are not unrelated as it happens we did some studies on that last year and that's a case where maybe the transition is the problem and not the end state in the sense that if there were no autonomous vehicles that's sort of where we are now if everybody drove autonomous vehicles the world would probably be a safer place there'd be fewer accidents and that would be better the danger zone is getting from here to there because if you know half the traffic is is driven by people and half the traffic is driven autonomously that's a huge danger zone and what we've discovered so far is that the autonomous vehicles are not entirely up to that challenge yet the optimists say well they will be you know this takes more time more data Uh, There's this wonderful statistic, which I've forgotten about the amount of data that a single autonomous car consumes, which is many times more than everything that you will use in a year or probably in your lifetime. And they'll do that in a single day. So we'll see. But I think acceptance, you know, when you're dealing in the trade world, consumer and producer acceptance is critical. If if companies won't accept data because they're not confident of it, or if companies won't provide the data because they're not confident of it then it's not going to be a successful system. This one's my last question, and it kind of goes back to China, what we were talking about with the Belt and Road Initiative, but also how they have uh, conducted military actions in their immediate vicinity. Given this rise in local and subsequently like, national tension with China, do you expect the role of the United States in general globally to shift? And will we shift our criticisms on more humanitarian issues with China, or will we ease up our role as a front-running hegemony? And more importantly, how does this affect the way we construct our trade policies with countries competing with China? Well, you've combined a whole bunch of questions into one. That's cheating, but uh, I'm not sure where to begin. I think that the bilateral relationship is driven in significant part by non-economic factors right now. And I think it is as bad as it is largely because of from my point of view, uh, changes in Chinese policy that have made things more difficult. Their weaponization trade that I alluded to earlier is is one, but their aggressive actions in the South China Sea, mostly with respect to other countries, but not us. I mean, we're defending open passageways there, their treatment of, of the Uyghurs and other minorities, their treatment of journalists. Treatment of their own students, for that matter, are all issues that have made the relationship very difficult. And we also seem to have this succession of what I refer to as sort of whack a mole problems, you know, the Garmo game where the little furry creature pops up and you hit it with a mallet. Then there's another one and you hit it with. A... There's always one more. Yeah. And, you know, we, we had the balloon in February and we have TikTok. Uh, now we have the cranes. I don't know if you are following the crane issue, which is the argument that the, um, Not the bird cranes, but the giant things that are used at ports to load and unload containers contain a whole bunch of sensors and data gathering equipment, which would allow the Chinese to obtain information. I don't know about either what's in the container or where the container is going or uh, where it came from. I'm not sure why that's a security threat, but in the minds of some people, it is. And then there's the farmland issue, which we actually fought out in the 80s with respect to Japan. It was a big thing then. And somebody finally realized, you know, they can't take it with them. I was working for Senator Rockefeller when the Japanese bought Rockefeller Center. I mean, he wasn't that excited about it, but he understood they're not going to pick the building up and move it to Tokyo. You know, it's in the United States. It's always going to be in the United States. So is the farmland. What are the Chinese going to do with farmland in Iowa? They're probably going to grow soybeans on it and sell the soybeans to China which is exactly what the current owners of that land are yes, doing. Right. So I'm not sure that, you know, these things, but these things get in the way of a relationship and they poison the well. And I don't see that changing. They just seem to keep coming. What it leads to, I think, and where we see this most obviously with the Internet, more than anything else, is fragmentation the division of the world into pieces. And in the case of the internet, it's three, not two, because you've got the EU with a set of rules, including on privacy and China with the Great Firewall and its own set of rules that, by and large, are not very popular with most other countries except other authoritarian states, because it's a censorship regime. And the United States, which it's not clear we have a policy, but it's generally more of a laissez-faire thing. We do seem to be moving in the direction of this kind of fragmentation, I think some people have suggested we're going to end up in a world where all the democracies are cooperating and working together and all the authoritarian states are cooperating and working together. I think that's probably oversimplification. And if you look at it economically, in the midst of all the stuff that I just got talking about, mm-hmm. our trade relations with China are bigger than ever. Mm-hmm. And trade is bigger than ever. And the, you know, there's been these articles about deglobalization, uh, which I think this is a case of, to misquote Lenin, of, of two steps forward, one step backward, or occasionally one step forward, two steps backward. Globalization, global economic integration exists for two reasons. One of them is what Scott cited, which is the enormous advances in communications technology and associated cost reductions, and exactly the same thing for transportation. And containerization, which was huge in uh, making trade much more efficient than it was before. Those don't get uninvented. They don't disappear. There were, I would argue, there were only two times in the last 2,000 years of history when we actually went backwards economically. One was after the fall of the Roman Empire, and one was uh, after 1913, when the level of global trade in 1913 was not reached again until 1970, 70, yep. two world wars and a depression. So you can go backwards, but the technology, the capabilities don't get uninvented, they're still there and they're going still gonna be taken advantage of. What we're seeing is what I alluded to earlier, which is more of a risk reassessment, but that's being driven in large part, I think by companies more than it is by governments. The big change here, and this gets to the second half of your question in a way, the big change here is that it's very hard to have a conversation about trade today without it being a conversation about security because the mm-hmm. two have been combined and you can't have a conversation about security without talking about China. So it all gets wrapped up, You know, into a single thing, and we take a lot of actions in the name of security, which may or may not be the real reason, but that's what we do. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that. And what that has means is it's it's an inward focus. It's a focus on protection. It's a focus on self, rather than how do we grow. You know, it's how do we protect what we've got, which over the long term is um, is not healthy. We are. A mature, slow-growth economy, you know, 3% a year is good for us. I mean, it's fantastic for us. 96% of the world's consumers are outside the United States. If you're an American company and you want to grow, you have to trade. There is no alternative because the American market, which is big, is not a growing market. Go back to the demography, okay? Demography rules. So there's a lot of reasons why global economic integration is going to continue, it may continue on a more fragmented basis or a more regionalized basis. I think, you know, when Francis Fukuyama wrote his book, The End of History in the early mm-hmm. aughts, he was another guy who should not be wrong. wrong. <laughs> uh, it's not the end of history. And uh, it's not the end of authoritarianism. It's not the triumph of democracy, all these things at issue. And here's a small mini rant, and then I should stop. One of the great events, of uh, the, one of the coolest things I got to do in my life is I got to give a commencement speech once at Johns Hopkins, and I had this. I found this quote by uh, Pat Moynihan, who was a senator from New York, also somebody you don't know because he probably died before. Well, he didn't die before you were born, but he was I think out of office probably before you were born. And Moynihan said this little thing, and this was like 10 or 12 years ago, but he said, you know, in all the history of the world, well, no, in the last 200 years there have been only two countries that were democracies then and are democracies now. Only two. And he went on to talk about that. And his point was that democracy is hard work. It doesn't Mm -hmm. happen by itself. And we've seen this a lot over the last couple of years here. It takes a lot of work. It takes, And it takes a lot of integrity and a lot of courage to make sure that democracy works. And you have to work at it every single day it's not god's gift to the united states it's something that was achieved through a revolution and you have to continue to fight for it and then he went on to actually this is relevant to you he went on to make a, a pitch for public service and said you know the, the highest calling really is government because it's the gut people that work in government that make democracy real and preserve it so that's the, the bigger challenge we have now is that going to mm-hmm. affect us on humanitarian issues this is an administration that is very much focused on that. And I think that you're going to see that continue. Whether that's how that plays out is complicated. There was a really interesting question. We talked to a group of students this morning mm-hmm. that I'd never thought about before. It was not asked of us, it was asked of the guy before us, but we happen to be listening. Somebody asked about should the United States continue to support independence movements in other countries? And the answer was, well, it depends on the movement. And he said, think of three cases Scotland. Catalonia, and Taiwan. Okay. So should the United States support an independent Scotland? What is that going to do to our relationship with the UK? Should we support an independent Catalonia? What is that going to do to our relationship with Spain and the EU for that matter? And what does it say about other independence movements within the EU in other countries or irredentist movements in other countries uh, in the EU? And if we do that, What is it? This is the thing that struck me. He said, if we do that, what does it tell the Chinese about what we might do on Taiwan? Which kind of makes the point that these things are all related in ways that you don't think about. So what you're doing over here in Scotland, the Chinese are watching and it's going to make a difference what, what you do over there. So you might say at one level, Taiwan is qualitatively different from the other two. But what you do in the other two is going to have an impact on what happens in Taiwan. That's why these issues are fun but it's also why they're complicated oh well,
1: this as somebody who grew up in the cold war you know I, I was glad that it resolved without anybody getting blown up but I, I what i can assure you is first no one expected the collapse of the soviet union when it happened and second the united states became the preeminent world power and at the moment of it happened we were ambivalent about that and i think the americans are still ambivalent about being what you called a hegemon. We, we never really wanted to be an empire. You know, this, we have this great continental landmass. So you look at the, the real factors of economic output, land, labor, and capital. We're the richest country in the world, no no doubt. And we kind of like that. But being being a, a hegemon in the classic you know, geopolitical sense, I don't think anybody ever really thought that was part of the deal. So, and we're still, we, as you can see, so we're still ambivalent about it, both our leaders and the American people. So,
0: and figuring out what to do on humanitarian issues is, is more complicated than people think, because a lot of it, you end up doing things that make you feel better without really thinking about the impact. And the classic example of that is Myanmar. When the United States imposed sanctions the first time, which was like 15 years ago, not the most recent time, the, the previous coup and the previous military went to we imposed uh, restrictions on imports of Burmese textiles and apparel. That was a sanction that was designed to get the Burmese military government to change its behavior. One thing it didn't do is it didn't change, get per se, the government to change its behavior. So it didn't succeed. The one thing that it did do was it put something like 300 Burmese women out of work poor Burmese women out of work. That was the consequence of our sanctions. And this happens more often than you think we do this thing and then we pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, we've done a good thing. We've sanctioned Myanmar because the government is evil and the government is evil. But uh, if the consequence of the sanction is not to hurt the evil people, but to hurt the poor people, you really have to ask yourself if you've done the, if you've done the right thing. And we didn't at that point. Thank you. Thank you.